I'm going to ask you two questions because I don't want to forget what I'm going to ask you because I, I know you're going to have a great story about your dad. The other one is you put together art and medicine and carpentry and you've got your own patents now. It's like you went and you created. And yes. my, my question to you is, would you have been able to create without that art history background? No. It's just... No. It, 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 now make, it makes sense. I make it all connect in everything I do. So I'm a surfer. What does surfing have to do with this? There are, there are podcasts, there are lectures all about living in the moment. To me, surfing, the nose of the board is your future. The tail of your board is your past. But only the surfer stands in the middle and learns to live in the moment. The metaphors of me simply surfing is life experiences. And I, I see it. I see God in two places in my life, in the ocean and when I open people up to do their surgery. To me, if you, and that's what I did for 12 years on the radio, yeah. not dumbing yeah, it yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. I found a topic and I went at it. From the world of art, the world of sports. And, the, and by the time I'm done with you, if you listen to the podcast, you'll go, what the hell does Eric Clapton and Cream have to do with George Steinbrenner and the Yankees and a knee replacement? If you take a few minutes, I'm about to teach you why they're all the same. So you got a pass. Most of my guests don't get this pass, but we're like 50 minutes in. And I'm going to get to my first question. <laughs> you got a lot of editing to do. <laughs> no. Or do it part no. one and part no. two. No, I don't edit. I like, I like the real deal. I want people to know exactly right. what happened in the room. You talk to a lot of people. The, the radio show, um, you get a lot, you've been guest speaker a lot, lecturer. Um, you bring a big crowd. You surf. You open people up many times a week. What goes through your mind 10 seconds before air and 10 seconds before you have a big surgery? I am so grateful for, I'm not nervous. I'm excited. And holy smokes, I pretty much was told my whole life in the beginning, you can't do this. You're not allowed. You're not smart enough. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. We're, we're not. We're the B team. Holy smokes. I, it's an out-of-body experience. Ten seconds before I do that, I literally can leave my body and look and go, look at you. These people are coming to you for your wisdom, whether it's in art, in sports, or in surgery. But it's for real. It's not fake. You know, you you know how this is going to end up. You've seen this x-ray. You see, you've seen what that x-ray means in real life. That x-ray is two-dimensional and it's in black and white. Your body is three-dimensional and it's in color. The x-ray is static. Your body is dynamic. These are just tools. But your expertise is to take two-dimensional, static, black and white information and allow someone to walk again without pain. Holy smokes. So 10 seconds before I, I go, 
Don't get full of yourself. You're still the kid from Far Rockaway. I saw in someone's um, memoriam, they said, in the train ride of life, I got a window seat. That's what I got. Amazing. Amazing. It's, uh, It's unbelievable how appreciative you are and how connected you are to both your past and your present. Yes. And your ability to then communicate that and give that to people, whether it's in a lecture, whether it's here on the podcast, or whether it's doing surgery. Yes. How many how many surgeries have you done? Over 16,000. And you enjoy? Oh, this, I was at, in surgery yesterday. And it's, and many of the patients, I've done their left knee. Now they need their right knee or they're not going to be the same, same surgeon, same parts, same person. And I tell them, you look at your hands, your right thumb's bigger than your left thumb. There isn't it. Never take it for granted. And I don't. The fact that that person is saying to me, Dr. Clapper, I'm going to go to sleep. I won't be able to be voting. I trust you. You do what you think is best is an unbelievable privilege. And just the fact that I have a sixth sense. Listen, you're doing this podcast. You've been in this business. What you know ain't in the book. I don't care what you do for a living. You're IT, you're an electrician, you do something 10,000 times. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the book anymore. Well, how would you like to have that intimacy with how the body works? My, my staff of nine employees, I'll go in the room sometimes and I'll start talking to a patient. And when did your mom die of breast cancer? And they'll stop and go, Dr. Clapper. And, then, and she'll say, oh, 10 years ago. And then they'll stop and go, Dr. Clapper, she never told you her mother died of breast cancer. How did you know to ask her when did you? That's how connected you can get. I don't know what connects all those dots. But my mother was like that as a nurse. She had this sixth sense. And it's been unbelievable to be in medicine, to, to see through the skin. You, the marble that I work on, people are fascinated. It's a block of stone. How do you see the figure trapped? Yeah. yeah. The only person really to visit Michelangelo in his studio was his biographer, Vasari. And he used to say, going to watch him work was as though a woman was nude under the bath water. And what he did was he would walk in and pull the drain plug. And as the water would recede, the figure would appear. What a beautiful way to describe it. After doing so many hips, knees, shoulder surgery, taking care of the body, if you tell me what hurts and why and when and the history that I get, and then I take my hands and I feel the bony landmarks, your acromion, your coracoid bone that I can feel with my hands, I've done so many surgeries, it sounds crazy to say it, but I can see through the skin like I can see through the block at the figure that's underneath. But I still don't take it for granted. I still respect the process. But those surgeries I did yesterday were the greatest that I've ever done because of the, the backstory of what I've done before. What are the most common surgeries that you do? The number one body part I operate on is probably the knee Mm -hmm. from fixing your ACL, your meniscus, and I do hundreds of knee replacements. Followed 
closely by hip surgery. I do a lot of hip surgery. Um, and I, it's funny, I do a lot. Most guys, if they do hips and knees, that's it. They don't do sports. They don't do... But again, I'm different. Yeah, yeah. So I still do a lot of sports, a lot of athletes, and I love shoulder surgery. And the reason I love shoulder surgery, if you want to know, I'll tell you. Yes, of course. Because so much happens in your life that you should not fight. I learned this as a surfer. You get out there and there is a riptide. Very good swimmers, very good surfers that I've known about have died. Because if you fight it, you will drown. What you need to do is relax. It may take you a mile up the beach, but it'll stop. And then you can just walk up the beach. So don't fight. Realize it's it's a message to you and take it. So at the Hospital for Special Surgery, where I proudly trained from 1984 to 1988 and invented tools that are used all over the world, including on the Pope, which is pretty good for a Jewish what, kid what, from what, New what York. What do you mean? What do you mean? The, the Pope John Paul II. Yeah. The Polish one, the one everybody loved. I guess everybody loves all the popes, but this one in particular. He fell, broke his hip. They put a prosthesis in. It got loose. The tools I've invented are specifically for revisions. If you have to redo someone's hip. And so the company that I licensed my patents to for these tools, these ultrasonic chisels, sent a letter to Indiana, to Biomet. Tell Dr. Clapper that the Italian surgeons are using the ultrasonic <laughs> tools that he invented on the Pope, which is unbelievable. Wow, but, that is unbelievable. Um, where was I? Where, where were you? I'm thinking about because I've got so many more questions, so I'm just going to throw in the question. I, let's go back to your dad for a second. Yeah. What did he say? What did he, I'm, I'm assuming he's passed. He has. He got to see your success. Yes. What did he think? What did he say? It backfired. And on some level, he obviously was very proud of me. He couldn't believe I could do all of these things. But on some level, I felt like I now got to the A team, but I didn't bring him with me. He stayed as the B team. And with that all being said, in the mid-90s, he called me from Florida and he said to me, I can't walk anymore, Robbie. My knee is killing me. I said, walk in the pool. I've written books about this. Come on. Don't let them give you cortisone shots. And definitely don't go to a doctor in Florida. <laughs> I said, that, that's where you go if you know whatever. So, oh and he said, I can't take it anymore, Robbie. So you got to realize, I went into practice in 1989. I'm already like five years into busy being busy doing all these surgeries. For other people, there's no way I'm going to let him go to another surgeon. Right, right. Because if they do anything not right, you know, they don't measure twice, cut once, which is what he taught me as a carpenter. I would kill the guy. But here's the problem. You can't operate on your own father unless you're Robbie Clapper. So I sent them round trip tickets to come to L.A. And oh, I hope there's a statue of limitations, but I did my own father's surgery. And it was the best thing in his body. And it gave me such... I had three other orthopedic surgeons in the room mm -hmm. in case mm -hmm. emotionally it would bother me. Guess what? It didn't bother me. What would you do? You replaced his knee? Yeah. And uh, he went back to Florida and lived many, many more years, but he didn't have a knee that hurt anymore. Yeah. And for me to be able to, and I just tell you one other story. So it was hard. He had a, such a hard life. He struggled. Yeah. I'm a little kid. Let's go back to me being eight years old. And one day at the kitchen table, 
because I got to see him for dinner and on the weekends. He was the happiest I ever seen him. I said, Dad, what happened? Robbie, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? There's no journal. There's no conventions to go to. How do you keep current as a carpenter in the 60s? The lumberyard. He said, Robbie, I just came back from the lumberyard and I saw the greatest thing I've ever seen. I said, what? He said, Robbie, you know, when you help me, we have those wooden studs. And in the 60s, a two by four was two inches by four inches. Now it's like the tuna fish. It's not seven <laughs> ounces anymore. It's five <laughs> ounces, right? Everything has changed, mostly to get shorter, right? A two by four is not two by four. And they're not made of wood anymore either. But in those days it was. And so when you have to mount the outlet box into the stud, my father took a pencil from behind his ear and mapped out the, the outlet box on the stud, made, made pencil marks, and then took a chisel. And, he, you know, it took him 15 minutes, and he cored out in the wooden stud the space for the outlet box. He looks at me and goes, Robbie, guess what I saw? I, said, I don't know, Dad. Why? Why are you so happy? There's a tool. It's called a Milwaukee Sawzall. It's a blade that goes this way. It reciprocates, oscillates. And the blade, you can stick. It's not like a round saw, the blade. It's this way. And you can go zip, zip. Robbie, I can cut into the wooden stud. I can put that out. It takes me now 20 seconds versus 15 minutes. And I remember saying to myself, oh, my God, this is... This is what I got to do with my life, that this tool can make my father right. so happy. Right. You know what I want to do with my life? I want to make tools that make people's lives easier. Yeah. So I still have in my house, the he couldn't buy it new, couldn't afford it. Yeah. He bought a used one. I still have the red rusted box with the original used Milwaukee wow. Sawzall that changed his life. Yeah. And that's why I have patents for surgical yeah. tools. So I have to tell you one other story. So when you work at ESPN, you can call Obama if you want, and he'll answer. That's how I always felt. Yeah. So I have a producer, Jared Abrams. Okay, Dr. Clapper, you know, tell me who you want as a guest. I can deal with the neurosurgeons. I can get the Getty Museum. I know everybody there. So the art part, the surgery part, no problem. But the other part that's fun that's out there, and I have William Shatner, my patient, as I get Dustin Hoffman. I mean, well, t Tony Danza would call in. I just want you to know my, my knees feel great. I'm walking across Fifth <laughs> Avenue. Call into the radio show. Bye. You know, thank you, Tony Danza. It was amazing. I had a wild, lovely time with the greatest guests. Otis Williams, who's founded The Temptations, yeah. was a guest of mine. Mary Lou Henner. I mean, these were all well, guests on the yeah. radio. That, that was no problem. But Jared Abrams... Okay, Dr. Clapper, who do you want to get? And I'm ESPN. I can, like I say, I can get whoever I want. One day I go, Jared, you know who I want to get as a guest? And, and Jared was made. He could get anybody. I want you to get the president, the CEO of the Milwaukee Tool Company. Because oh. <laughs> I want to tell him the story that I just told you and how much that damn tools changed my life. Okay, Dr. Clapper, I'm on it, right? I don't know, a month goes by. Oh, he's a tough one, Dr. Clark. He's of here. a tough one. But I got him. Okay? <laughs> Steven. Oh, he's going to kill me. I, I don't remember his last name. Right? It's in my phone. I can look it up. But anyway, he's the CEO of Milwaukee Tools. So I get the phone number. 
And I call, hi, I'm Dr. Clapper. I work at ESPN. Oh, I'd love to have a show. I love you. And like a week goes by, two weeks goes, three weeks, I'm seeing patients. My phone goes off. He's calling me back. He says to me, Dr. Clapper, I don't want you to say anything right now. Let me just talk. This is what he says to me. I got a brother. He's a banker in Beverly Hills. Every week, my brother calls me and says, you got to listen to this guy on the radio. He says, so first I want you to know, my brother will be so happy to know that I'm actually going to come on your show as a guest. And he comes on the show and I tell him the story. Ever since then, every week, every month, you, if you came to my office, like your room right now, yeah. you can't walk because I have so many Milwaukee tools that oh, he sent so me. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. So the inventions that you've come up with um, are to minimize the surgery, surgery to yeah. minimize the intrusiveness, I'll say. Trauma. Trauma. Okay. You, um, it's interesting because as, uh, you know, you've done all these surgeries, as many of the surgeries that you have done, people kind of know you as a guy to avoid surgery that will tell you to avoid surgery. Yes. Why? Because I want to treat people the way I would want to be treated. Don't have a cortisone shot. Don't let them talk you into the miracles of this stem cell in it. No. You better ask about the side effects. Be holistic. Walk in the pool. My co-author, Linda Yui, we've written three books together. Mm -hmm. Heal your hips, heal your knees. Who better to tell you how not to have, I don't want to have surgery. Who better to tell you how not to have surgery than a guy like me? Yeah. I'm not trying to be a contrarian. I'm not trying to be cool. I'm not going on the radio to hustle patients. I'm busy. But you need someone to tell you the truth. The softest pillow to sleep on at night is a clear conscience. You care. I care. Guess what? Not everybody else cares, including people in medicine. So I love people. They wait months to get an appointment with me. They come to see me. Finally, they've seen three other people. You got to have surgery tomorrow. I look at them. I go, There's no clock. You're not making surgery harder for me to do by waiting or harder to recover from. Get stronger. You may be able to avoid surgery if you make your quad, your hamstring, your calf muscles strong, less stress in your knee joint. There are so many people I have told, stay away. Guess what happens? They go back home. They have dinner. Guess what? I met Dr. Clapper. I finally got to meet him. You know what he told me? I don't need surgery. Your doctors, your surgeon said you don't need surgery. Five other people come. And guess what? These people can't walk. Okay, that's different. But I still want them to do the pool beforehand right. so that their recovery will be easier. Okay, so knees, hips, shoulders, shoulders let's, let's but say. But the number one person I see, because I'm a general orthopedic surgeon, I love foot and ankle problems. I love, I don't love back pain. Nobody loves back pain. But the number one person I see is someone whose back hurts or their neck hurts yeah. because now is the is the shoulder pain coming from a pinched nerve in their neck or is it coming from their rotator cuff? You need me to figure out what's the matter. Yeah. Or their hip pain. Guess what? Not everybody with a bad hip or hip pain has a bad hip. They have hip pain because the L23, L34 nerve in their lower back is the nerve that feeds their hip. So many people have had back surgery mistakenly when it was their hip causing the pain and vice versa. You need the depth of understanding, of connecting it all. And you need to be a good nurse. 
To yourself, you mean? To, to yourself. people, though. To be, yes, Are I'm you a saying surgeon. You're, you're talking about yourself. Yes, you need but to. you need to treat them like my mother treated people, with caring and Let's do everything we can to not have surgery. So let's talk about that just for a second. Let's do everything we can to not have surgery. Yes. Uh, as people, you know, weekend warrior, love the name. Mm-hmm. That's re- it's it's really what so many people do, right? They yes. they work all week. Right. They're not in great shape. They go out. They play tennis, golf, basketball, whatever they want to still right. do it at the same rate that they did it when they were younger. They're I'm going to write another little, book. Yeah. Stop exercising. You're killing yourself. And then it'll say, let me explain. Yeah. Explain that. Explain that. We, our society is polluted with the drug companies. They would rather find a drug for your cough than find the drug that, for what's causing the cough. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to feel that you get younger by running. Okay. You don't. Everybody wants to eat whatever they want to eat and then exercise the calories away. Don't work that way. You don't get younger and you don't lose weight because of this. How many patients I have. So I do over, I mean, I do hundreds and hundreds of hip and knee. These are weight-bearing joints, knee and hip implants every year. Thousands, right? They're not in your grandmother. They're in you. What do you mean? 37-year-olds, 42-year-olds, 48-year-olds. This is what I'm doing hip surgery and knee surgery on. Not your grandparents who just wore the joints out. Why? Because we live in a society where if your knee hurts, you take Advil and you keep going to the gym to run on the treadmill. But now you don't feel it because it's deadened by the drug, but you're still doing more damage. That's what I live with. That's the society I live with. No, I actually love pain. What? You're interviewing a doctor who says he loves pain? Yeah, because it's the only information your body gives you that it doesn't like. Now, your next-door neighbor who runs like a gazelle with perfect technique, gig isn't egg. They could run. They're not going to injure their knee. But what about the faggish love that you see at the red light running up next to you? You're in your car who's overweight, whose arms are flailing. I look at this guy going... I should give him my car because he's going to need me soon. Oh, God. You know, everyone's either pre-op or post-op. Oh, my gosh. But okay, so so what So what? What does that mean? That means, that means that- I should trademark the term. We can do it right here on your podcast. Okay. Here's the term. Ager size. Ager size. What, what does it, that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? That when you were 20, pretty sure you can go to the roof of this building, jump, you would land on your car, wipe your arms off, and keep walking. When you're 60 years old or 40 years old, you ain't jumping off this roof landing on a car. You're going to break something. So what you do as exercise in your head, you're still 20, but you're not. So you need to exercise differently. Fall in love with the pool, the bike, the elliptical, yoga, but not every position. Pilates, mat Pilates, not the reformer. Women for their osteoporosis, Tai Chi. It doesn't hurt the joint. It loads the bones. Beautiful. I love it. And obviously the pool. Okay, so you just said something that I've never heard before. Don't load the joint. Correct. So that's what destroys the cartilage. Okay, so as you're getting older, you're saying running, you're loading the joint. Unless you've got perfect form and you're one of these people. So so for this interview, stop running. (laughs) Okay. So here's what I hate for your listeners. Treadmill, lunges, squats. Stair machines, weights for your legs. Hate it. Make a living from it. 
Wow. I love the pool. I love the bike. I love the elliptical. I love Pilates, Matt Pilates, okay. not the reformer. I love yoga, not every position. And I love dancing and Tai Chi. Wow. For balance and okay. bone density. You're talking to someone who struggles with running, not running, running, not right. running. Stop it. Yeah. Get by yourself. You don't need a, a fancy thousands of dollars bike. Get a Schwinn spinning bike. And I don't work for the company. I don't work for any company. Yeah. A few hundred dollars, have it in the house, three days a week, half an hour, ride the bike. And at this age, past 40, whatever exercise you choose, even the good ones I just showed you, do a half an hour. Stop. Well, Dr. Clapper, I paid 45, the 45-minute hour class. Good. Get off the bike at a half an hour. Because after 40, your brain, your body sees the same. Okay, I got the message. This is a good exercise for half an hour. But you should now go do something different for a half an hour. Blocks of half an hour. Don't force it down your body's throat because then you get overuse, you get carpal tunnel, you get lateral epicondylitis, tennis help. You get all kinds of overuse syndromes. If you do the same exercise every day and you do it for an hour, you're going to hurt yourself, not help yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Talk, talk about, set this straight for me, please. The ice, the elevate, the ibuprofen, the, you know, something hurts. You say you like pain, feel the pain, but ice, heat, ibuprofen, what what do you do? Acute injuries. You just tore something, ripped something, hurt something. Twisted your ankle on the tennis court. Ice, ice, ice. You you need to uh, make the, and it's for real reasons. The clapper vision is the pipes in your body, your arteries, are not the pipes in your kitchen. The pipes in your your arteries have smooth muscle around them that respond by vasoconstriction. So ice makes it cold. Guess what happens? It vasoconstricts. If there's less piping of blood, you will get less swelling. So for an acute injury, you want vasoconstriction. Ice does that okay. holistically. If you say, I feel this is a chronic problem that I have, my back hurts or whatever, then heat is nice because it increases blood flow. It causes vasodilation. The same pipe can either squeeze or dilate. If it gets more blood supply to a chronic injury, it helps with healing. But I'm a big fan of if you do heat, you should still follow it up with ice afterwards. So alternate. Okay. Okay. And what about the ibuprofen? You got to be careful. I mean, obviously, your kidneys do not want that stuff because it gets taken up by the kidneys. And your kidneys, you only get, you know, two. And you mess them up, you're not going to. And my, my wife always says, uh, I never answer the question, so I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> Alonzo, she says, I think you're doing great. <laughs> Alonzo Mourning, famous basketball player. Yeah. Sean Elliott, famous basketball player. They took so much ibuprofen so they could play basketball. Yeah. Sean Elliott, I think, had a kidney transplant. Uh, so there's enough said. So that's Does real, everybody that's real. who takes I, ibuprofen get that? No, but it should not be seen as an M&M candy. I think people, people overuse it. For sure. Oh. Um. I want to go right to surfing because we have not talked about that yet. You mentioned it. How'd you get into surfing? <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess. It's a story. <laughs> so I needed to go to work to pay for college, to pay for med school. 
And I did. I worked in the Catskill Mountains. I didn't have a driver's license. I hitchhiked the Tappan Zee Bridge. Now I think they call it the Mario Cuomo Bridge, but Route 17 up to the Catskills because that's where I can make the most amount of money. Biggest bang for the buck. I got my high school principal to let me only go to school four days a week. I don't know how I pulled that one off. So uh, my second semester senior year in high school, I could hitchhike to the mountains uh, and work as a bellhop, check in for the hotels and work as a car hop and then a waiter and whatnot and come back so I could go to school on Monday. It's crazy. But that's how I assembled money to pay for school. And I mean, not just tuition, I had to pay the rent and the whole bit because that's the house that I came from. So now I am working in college, pre-med, organic. You can only imagine. Well, Christmas vacation, I work. During the week, I work uh, at school. I got a job as the bowling alley mechanic. Why? Because there were no on-campus jobs anymore. There was only one job left that was available And as the girl who looked at me and said, what part of there are no jobs on campus do you not understand? And I said, can I just see the book anyway? She goes, yeah, all of these jobs are taken already. She goes, the red means they're taken. So I said to her, you mean the green means it's still open? Yeah. So she pushes the book. She's chewing gum. She could care less. She ain't helping me. (laughs) So I open up the book. Everything's red except one One tiny little piece of paper was green. Bowling alley mechanic. Ferris Booth Hall. They had three bowling alleys. For the last five years, two bowling alleys worked. One was broken. I open up. I go, here's a job. This is green. Yeah, it's green. It's been a green one for five years because it's to be a bowling. She looks at me and goes, are you a bowling alley mechanic? I said, yes, I am. Okay. I am now. Do I have any idea how a bowling alley works? No. But I needed a job because I got to pay for food. She goes, you're a bowling alley mechanic. I go, yes, I am. She goes, then you got a job. So I show up the first day. Okay. Everybody's excited. The mechanic's here. We're going to have the third bowling alley. And I'm like, looking behind me. Where's the mechanic? Oh, it's me. Okay. I can't believe it. So what do I do? I go in the back. And I take the back off of the two bowling alleys that are working. Have you ever seen the Have you ever seen the back of a bowling alley? Never. There's like fifty. <laughs> uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, fan belts. And like, it's it's insane. Yeah. So I look at the two. There's like fifty. I'm like great. And then I take the back off the broken one. Right. Okay. You turn it. It doesn't work. And I'm looking at these things that are working. Wait a minute. There's a fan belt in these two, but that's missing one. So, and by the way, it's an hourly wage. It's $4.50 an hour, whatever you get minimum wage at the time in the yeah. 70s at, Col- at Columbia. In about two hours, I just matched the belts and, and then I go to the front, I flip the switch. Holy smokes. It's working. It's working. Like, <laughs> wait a minute. That's $9 that I'm going to get paid. I need this job for the whole. Quickly, I shut it off. I take the belt off, right? I milked it for the entire And then the last day, I said, okay, I fixed the bowling alley and I left. But anyway, so money. Was a problem. So I am blessed because I get to go to medical school at Columbia. I finished the three years. Now I'm going to start my fourth year. This is the end of medical school. You actually get the degree in MD, which is scary. The dean announces the end of the third year. As you begin your fourth year, we're going to, we encourage you at Columbia to study elsewhere. 
Each month is called an elective. We want you to go to the Mayo Clinic and Massachusetts General Hospital and all these other places. We encourage that. And all I hear is, I'm exhausted. I've been working all these years in a row. Electives. I have to do electives in orthopedics so that they see who you are, so you can get into programs very competitive. But all I'm hearing is the beach. I do a month elective in August at the University of Miami, Jackson Memorial Hospital. So Columbia, we were busy as a trauma service. We got 12 gunshot wounds a weekend. Thanks to Liberty City and the University of Miami, 12 gunshot wounds a night. I literally remember wow. a guy coming into the ER with a butcher knife sticking out oh. of his chest. And the, the resident that I was with, I'm a medical student, goes, okay, we're going to triage. He's stable. Let's go do the other guy. I'm like, oh. there's a butcher knife sticking out of that. That's not the most extreme thing. I mean, oh, that's how wow. crazy it was. Okay. Okay. So you saw a lot of the beach. University of Miami. <laughs> I did not get to the beach once, but I was at least in Miami and it was intense. Then a month, UCLA. Okay, I don't even know anybody from California, whatever. I come to UCLA, but I did one other elective. Now, I went to the dean's office, a medical education office, and I, I look. And what do I see? University of Hawaii. Ooh. Okay. What it's even doing there is, is really an anomaly <laughs> because the front page of the elective book says... If you are not a student at the University of Hawaii, do not open this book because these electives are not for you. They're only for our. I don't know what the book was doing there. Yeah. What do I know from Hawaii? I know Hawaii Five O. That's it. I don't know anybody's ever been to Hawaii. All I know is in the world of beaches, this has got to be the greatest beach in the world. Right. right? I don't even have anybody to interview. So I spring into action. I open the book. And they're so smart at the University of Hawaii. They don't want people like me visiting. So the elective at every other program is the first of the month to the 31st. It's a month. Not the University of Hawaii. Mm. It's the 14th to the 14th. But I get a month vacation my fourth year of medical school. So I, bo I box the month of March and the month of April, my vacation month, so that I can actually go from March 14th to April 14th. And at that time, you could dial nine and get an outside line. So what did I, and again, in my whole life, I've never lied. I've never said something that I've just let you make assumptions. Except with the uh, bowling alley. Uh, yeah. yeah well, I, kinda, I, I actually bit. was a bowling alley mechanic, so I didn't <laughs> lie. But anyway, I take the book and I see the, it's in cardiology. What do I, I don't want to be a cardiologist, but that was the only one that fit March 14th April when I could do this. So it says elective in cardiology, Dr. Alfred Morris. It's actually his name and a phone number. So dial nine, I called the number. Hello, Dr. Morris? Yes, never lied. I'm a fourth year medical student. Oh, great. Do you have any openings for your elective March 14th, April 14th? Yes, I do. What is your name? Robert. Okay, see you in March. Never told him I was not a University of Hawaii medical. He thinks I'm a University of Hawaii medical student because I dialed nine from Manhattan, okay? I drained, by the way, this is the answer to how'd you get into surfing question. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm following you. So I am so excited, even though I have no idea. But now I need a place to live. So I get the Honolulu phone book, Kahanamoku Dormitories, which I later find out is a dormitory for young male Buddhists, you know, like 
I don't belong in this, but I, I picked it's a dormitory. <laughs> so I have no idea where I'm staying, but I made arrangements and I drain my precious checking account to buy a round trip ticket from New York to Honolulu. I really have no money left. I used it all to fly there. I fly to Honolulu. Now, here's a moral for you, a story for your listeners. Don't ever arrive in a city you've never been in at 11 o'clock at night because it's dark. You don't know where any, but I did, 11 o'clock at night. And I have my suitcase and I get a taxi and I said to the taxi driver, here's the address that I need to go to. The taxi cab driver turns around and goes, are you sure that's where you want to go? Yes, that's where I come on. Let's go already. Okay, he says, he takes me, drops me off on this. They have bad neighborhoods in Honolulu. This is a bad neighborhood with my city. And, you know, the taxi takes off. And there I am, standing like Robert De Niro, standing in the middle of the road and looking at this place where they're praying to, like, a cockroach that's quarreling up the wall. Oh, boy. You know, and they're all shaved heads, which now is nice, but in those days was not nice. And I'm going... These are Buddhist monks in the dormitory. They're like, they're probably cooking people like me. I have no idea what's going on in here. I was scared out of my mind. I did not sleep. The next morning, I go to the uh, medical center, Queens Hospital, and the, the medical tower next to it, to the fourth floor, the cardiology floor. And I go in there in a Hawaiian shirt. I've only seen doctors with white coats. He's got a Hawaiian shirt and a st- I'm already going, this is paradise. This is the opposite of Columbia Presbyterian. It's Dr. Alfred Morris. He looks at me and he goes, Robert, you're not you're not a University of Hawaii medical student. You're going to have to go home. Oh. You can't do this elective. Uh-oh. I'm saying to myself, oh, my God. Busted. He goes, in fact, you see these two guys? They're mad at me because I gave the spot to you. They want the spot. They're Hawaii students. They have to do You have to go home. But he was such a nice guy. He said to me, now, listen, I know you made this big trip. He didn't know that I stayed in this crazy dormitory, nearly risking my life in that (laughs) dormitory. And he says, you can spend the morning with me. You can even come tomorrow. But it can't count as an You have to go home. Right. So he was so sweet because he was the greatest. We read EKGs. I saw some patients. I'd never met a doctor this kind and this sweet in my life before. And he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt with a stethoscope around his <laughs> On top of like, it. <laughs> on top of all this stuff. And I'm in this clinic, which was so great. It, it was amazing. 12 o'clock comes. He says to me, okay, Robert, we're done. I said, that's it? Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to go home. I, we only work till 12 and whatever. Like, it was insanity 12, 12 to me. midnight okay. 12, or 12? 12 noon he 12 was done noon. we're gonna have lunch and it's over our day's over he works a half a day or whatever well, he says you know you can come tomorrow be with me but i never had more fun reading ekgs and learning it, it was like ripping my heart out literally on the cardiology rotation yeah, yeah. with this guy so and i'm in trouble because i have a round trip ticket i have no money to back myself up I've already made the designation. Mr. Smarty Pants got outsmarted, right? <laughs> so now it's noon. I'm eating the peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I made for myself. Crisis. Lamenting the crisis. You did it. You look at what you got. You know, yelling at myself almost as I'm eating this peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a room. It's noon. So people have, it's just, I'm just there. 
all of a sudden, you talk about divine, why do I believe in God for many reasons? Here's one of them. I'm eating the peanut butter and jelly, and all of a sudden I hear, code blue, code blue, help, help, code blue. And I'm eating my sandwich. I mean, it's not that far from me. She's yelling, code blue. I mean, terrible. Code blue means what? means someone is dying. Okay. In a cardiology clinic. (laughs) As I put my sandwich down, I look, and those two students that he just introduced me to who were mad at me because I took the, are running the other way. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. As As I peek my head out of the door with the sandwich in my right hand, I make eye contact with this nurse. Please, help. I throw the sandwich down. I go running in the room, and there is a 300-pound Samoan having a Holter monitor. And on the screen, he's in VTAC. What's that mean? That means ventricular tachycardia. means his heart rate does not efficiently pump blood, and he's going to die right now. I look at this. I go, oh, my God. I say to her, get the Ambu bag. Get it. And I jump, and on the side of the bed, she gets all this... And I punch him in the chest and I start CPR. She's doing with the amber wig, trying to breathe him. In, and I'm pumping, I'm pumping. And all of a sudden, boop, 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 boop. And the rate comes back. She looks at me. And, you know, I have already opened people's chests in the ER to squeeze their heart. I mean, I go to Columbia with gunshot wounds. I mean, wow. this was like a no big deal. But he went for the, I got him back into the room. She looks at me. She goes, oh, my God. We saved him. I go, yeah. That's the whole idea. <laughs> she goes, I've never saved anybody before. Ooh. I said, well, Mazel Tov, you've now saved somebody. She goes, wow, what's your name? I said, Robert Clapper. She said, who, who are you? What are you doing here? I said, I'm a medical student. She goes, oh, wow. How long will you be with us? <laughs> I said, as a matter of fact, they're kicking me out because I'm not from the I'm from Columbia. She goes, who told you that? I said, well, I'm here with Dr. Morris. She goes, come with me. She takes my hand. We go out of that room, and he was still there doing paperwork behind his desk. She bangs on the door. Bang, 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 bang. She bangs on the door. He lifts his head. Yes, Dr. Morris? Yes, Gloria? She says, do you know what this young man just did? He just saved one of your patients' life. She said, um, and he's telling me you're not letting him stay, Dr. Morris? Honey, he ain't going anywhere. He's staying here. <laughs> okay, Gloria, whatever you say. That's exactly what well, happened. So you stayed. And they had a newsletter that they printed. I still have this in my house. Mahalo to, to Robert Clapper for saving Aww. our patient and all the rest of it. He looks at me and goes, I guess you're going to be able to stay. So then, so that afternoon, because I ain't going back to the the, the Buddhist the dorm, training the dorm. dorm. <laughs> I'm going, where do I, and I have no money. Yeah. So I ask around, I ask around, and uh, someone says to me, you know, I can't say, I can't be the only person who, who isn't from Hawaii. Like, tell me, like, did you know anybody? You know, I think there was a guy from Michigan and blah, blah, blah. Boom, 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 led to another. I get a name. I call this guy. There's a guy on Lilio Kalani Street in Waikiki. It's two blocks from the beach. He will rent you his couch in his living room to sleep on for $200 for the month. Wow. I said, done. <laughs> done deal. I go meet the guy. He was Chinese Hawaiian. He says to me, 
So I finished, I went back to that noon. I think he looks at me and goes, okay, Robert, we're done. Go have fun. What do you mean? Go have, just go, we're done. Enjoy. You're here for a reason. I go back and this, the landlord says to me, you know, we're going surfing right now. Want to come? I go, yeah. So I get to the beach with him. He has an extra board. This is my surfing lesson. This is in Waikiki where it's really easy. Just get on the board, paddle with me. We're going to get out to the lineup. By the way, hold on. You're joking that it's really easy. Waikiki has huge waves, doesn't it? No. no oh, okay. No, this is the easy, other side. It's the easy side. Okay. And, you okay. know, in the summertime, it can be bigger, but it's, this, this okay. is easy. Okay. This is March, April. It's like one feet, two feet, three foot okay. at the most. But you've never but, surfed. Never surfed before. So here's my lesson. I go with this guy on his board. We paddle out beyond the break to the lineup at, at a canoes, it's called. We turn the board around. I sit on it, kind of flimsy. He goes, okay, when I tell you, start paddling as hard as you can and stand up. That was my lesson, okay? So this little wave comes. He goes, here comes the wave. Start paddling. And I start paddling as hard as I can. And you feel as you paddle. I don't know if you've ever surfed, but it's as though God taps you on the shoulder and goes, okay, you can stop paddling now. You take your hands up. I got on my knees. I stood up. Big old board. I stood up. And I rode the wave. And I remember looking up at Diamond Head and saying, okay, God, here's the deal. I'm going to do your work for the rest of my life. Through these hands, you're going to guide me. But in exchange for that, you got to let me do this. (laughs) And that is the moment I fell in love with surfing. Mm -hmm. So people ask me, why are you in L.A.? Why are you you even? The answer is because I get to surf. So you surf in L.A.? I do. It, in wow. Ventura. Wow, nice. All right. I, I, I I'm know exhausted. The, I know. I can tell you're exhausted. I just, before, before, don't tell a big story, but you do still do your art. You do still sculpt. Yeah. We didn't really get into that. You don't have to go into the big story, but I just want to clarify because people do come to your office and they see yep. sculptures there. Those are yours. You, yep. you do those. You bring that marble from Italy. Yep. Through the Panama Canal in a big wooden box. And uh, I work in the same stone that Michelangelo used to make the David. I use the same chisels. I use the hammers. I really don't like using power tools. I want to do it exactly like he does to learn, unlock the secrets of how he made the most complicated human emotion in rock. The ultimate paradox. And what I learned from him is if you take a face and you rotate it this way and this way, two planes, you have taken a rock and shown sadness, Mary losing her son. And he was the greatest artist to show complex human emotions in stone. What do I mean? If you go to the Vatican, you'll see the Pieta. Pieta means pity, sorrow, that he did when he was 20. It's one of the greatest pieces of art ever made. Mary losing her son, giving him, now she's a Christian, giving him to the world. How do you show that? So he tilts her head away from Jesus and her eyes are closed. That's how he shows that sorrow. But if you go in Florence to the Medici Chapel, because he made four pietas in his life. If you go to the Medici Chapel in Florence, there's a pieta there where Mary is holding Jesus, but he's a baby. It's pieta, it's sorrow for a woman to lose her son. It's the greatest grief. 
But if he's an adult, the sorrow of losing an adult son is, is incredible. But the sorrow of losing a baby to Michelangelo was even more incredible. So carefully look at that Pieta. Here, Mary, again, you have to tilt the head to show sorrow, to give it the emotion. But here he does the opposite. He rotates her head towards Jesus. And because he's a baby, her eyes are open. Mm. Who thinks this way? Nobody. Bernini, a better technician, came 100 years later. Rodin, okay, copied Michelangelo. But for me, if you want to understand the journey of life, do what I do. Look at his early sculptures and follow his life towards 89 years old, 500 years ago. And you will see his invention of Impressionism 300 years before Claude Monet. You'll see his invention of abstract art 400 years before Andy Warhol. He did it and described complicated human emotions in rock. That's why I'm obsessed. Amazing. Amazing. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. Welcome. Thank you so much for your knowledge, your energy. I know you said you're tired, but I, you got you have unbelievable energy. Where do you get that all that energy? Because I'm grateful. Yeah, you are. That's where it comes from. All right. Well, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for coming in person and to my studio. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for... Uh, Having your podcast. What's next for you? Oh, I encourage you and all your listeners to go. August 4th is a big gala. You can come then. But this summer, the La Brea Tar Pits are celebrating the saber-toothed cat. And I have an exhibit at the, Sab at the La Brea Tar Pits because yours truly discovered something in the saber-toothed cat's hip that the paleontologists did not appreciate for over 100 years. I brought the bones to Cedars, got CAT scans, and I showed them something about the saber-toothed cat that they never appreciated. So the, the museum has now made a big exhibit, and it's the first time you're going to see the Cedars-Sinai logo in the museum. Nice. Okay. So that's happening this summer. That's okay. what's next. Okay. I'll have a link to that in the show notes yeah. for everyone. And then it'll, yeah. not that you need any more any any more people coming your way. It sounds no. like you're really busy. But I think people really, uh, you know, enjoy listening to you, finding you. And, you know, if they need to, coming to yeah. see you. I'm a doctor. That's yeah. what I do. That's really what I do because of the art, because of the surfing, because of the science. I still, the number one thing I do is... Thank you. Thank you for having me.